Romans chapter 9. And as you're turning there, um, let me give you an overview or an idea of what we're going to study this morning and why we are studying it. We've been going through the book of Zechariah now um, since the fall. And as we've done that, we've been progressing through the sections of Zechariah. And we are just about to enter the final apocalyptic section of Zechariah, dealing with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ to the earth, his foot setting down on the Mount of Olives, the deliverance and salvation of national Israel, the institution of a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and all the nations of the world coming up year after year to worship the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem. And we've paused before entering this final section to sort of lay the ground with some of the things that we believe here at Martinsdale Community Church, things that are written into our doctrinal statement. I read last week from it um, that our doctrinal statements, one of the things it says is that we believe the church is distinct from ethnic Israel. And so last week I tried to explain why that is a significant issue. And, and I tried to explain that there are two views, um, two generally and broad categories views, and in some respects, we are in the minority, certainly in church history. And if you were just to poll those who, who call themselves Christians in the West or in the world, I'm pretty sure we'd be in a solid minority there as well. The, the majority view um, that really came to fruition um, in the third, fourth centuries of the church was that the church had replaced, superseded, took the position of, or inherited the title of Israel, and therefore all of Israel's promises, that God was now going to no longer fulfill his plan on earth through Israel, but through the church, and that the ch Israel was welcome to come join the church, Israel was invited to, but as regards Israel as an ethnic people, there, there was no future distinction, there was no future expectation for anything for them outside of the church. That was, that's one view. That's not, that's not the view that is held here, that is believed here. The other belief, and, and this is the statement that is written into our, our doctrinal statement, is that while there is much overlap between Israel and the church, plenty of overlap, there, there is distinction. And specifically, as we read the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have an expectation that at some future point, God will restore Israel. He will restore them spiritually. First, they will, they will become converted. God will not bless an unrepentant, unbelieving people. But secondly, they will be restored to a kingdom on earth with, with the Lord Jesus Christ reigning. And we're going to see that in Zechariah. And so before going into Zechariah and studying that, I wanted to take two weeks, and this is why we believe this. If you've ever read our statement of faith and, and wondered, what, what, what is that there for? Or if you know other Christians who hold the different views, I wanted to take some time to explain that. So last week, we laid out the issue, tried to explain the two views, tried to explain why this is an important issue. I'd encourage you, if you missed that, to go back and get that message. It lays a lot of the foundation for today. But in many senses, my argument, my reasoning was abstract last week, coming at it theologically, coming at it from an overview. What I want to do this week is just look at one passage. Because if this is taught in the Bible, I think it might be easiest just to see it taught unfolding through one passage. Now, the passage I've chosen is rather large. No, that is not a typo. We will be looking at Romans chapter 9 through 11. We're going to try to cover three chapters of Romans this morning. The Lord will give grace. <laughs> Lunches will be arriving around noon. 
And Daniel set up tea time around 3.30. Okay. So, because the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9, I think, lays out clearly in a, in a reasoned argumentation his understanding, which is God's understanding, of the future of Israel, the relationship of Israel to the church, and how that ties into the gospel. If you've studied through Romans, and if you've been here for, for more than a few months, if you were here, the last book, in fact, that Pastor Gary um, preached through was the book of Romans. And so I'm going to trust in some senses that most of you have got some understanding, some grasp on the, the big structure of Romans. But let me just remind you that in the first eight chapters of Romans, the Apostle Paul most clearly, most powerfully unpacks the gospel. In the first three chapters, our need of salvation. And then, turning in the middle of chapter 3 to justification, salvation by grace through faith, he unpacks and defends that, and then he moves into the consequences of the gospel, the consequences of justification by faith. And in Romans chapter 8, which is many call the, the pearl, the capstone, the pinnacle of the entire New Testament, he just pours out these lavish promises upon us. Let me just pick up at the end of chapter 8. Let's start in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We regard the sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, that is some wonderful promises for those of us who know the risen Lord by faith. And now, strangely, Paul is going to turn to the issue of Israel for three chapters. And, and that confuses some people. But I think the logic is pretty clear. Paul has just made these remarkable, gracious, resplendent promises of our inseparability from God. We talk about the security of the believer, the perseverance of the saints. It is passages like these upon which that doctrine is taught. Jesus said clearly, no one is going to slip through his hands. Nothing once joined can separate you or me from the love of God in Christ. Except there's a problem. We saw this last week. God has made similar promises to national Israel. We read that. Many passages. I have loved you with an everlasting love. If this fixed order of the sun and the moon and the stars departs me, then... Will I cast off Israel from being a nation before me, says the Lord. Again and again and again, God says to Israel, yes, I will discipline you. Yes, I will punish you. Yes, 
I will shepherd you, but I will not utterly cast you off. And yet in Paul's day, aside from a few thousand Jews who believed, the Jews were the enemies of the gospel. Paul had been attacked and stoned by Jews on his journey. We'll see at the end of this passage, the Jews are the enemies of the cross. And so the problem Paul's dealing with is how can he make these promises at the end of eight when, when Israel is now the enemy of the gospel? How can he do that? How, the believer, in other words, is thinking, yes, Paul, that's great that you made these promises, but how, how can I be sure that I won't suffer the same fate as Israel? God said similar things to Israel, and look at them now. How can I really hold on to these promises, Paul, and believe them with, with, with what's going on with Israel? And so that is, that is what sets up this, this detour. It's not really a detour. It is a development of his argument. That's what sets this up. Paul dealing with this. This is how it ties together. Romans 9 is famously known as the, the passage. It so clearly teaches election and predestination and, and people struggle with it. But you've got to understand, that's all brought out. Paul brings out those big theological canons, if you will, to deal with this problem. And so we're going to dive in looking at the present failure and future salvation of Israel. And we're just going to read through three chapters. We're just going to read through and make some comments. We're going to slow down a little bit. We're going to sprint most of the way there. We'll slow down a little bit when we get to chapter 11. And my goal in this is to unpack and explain, to help you see Paul's reasoning. He's, he's lucid. He's cogent. He, he makes a reasoned argument. And it's great to go verse by verse, but I think sometimes it's helpful to stand up, get a ver- bird's eye view of what Paul is saying. That's what we're going to try to do. So I'm going to explain Paul's argument and reasoning. I will not spend much time defending it. In other words, I want you to see what Paul is saying. I want you to track his logic, and I'll leave it to to Pastor Gary's sermons from Romans 9. If you want to go back and and hear it more fully expounded, you can do that. We're going to do this in three parts. First, looking at Israel's past. Point one, past. Israel's sovereign election. Israel's sovereign election. Let's read the first six verses. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. And to, the, for, and to them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now here Paul sets up the problem. Here's the problem. He's got anguish. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul has spent a large portion of the first eight chapters, nearly all of chapter 7 and chapter 6, attacking the notion that the law and and keeping the Mosaic law was essential to salvation. And in doing so, he had to expose the weaknesses of the law. The law is good, the law is right, the law is insufficient. And Paul exposes that quite clearly in Romans chapter 7. And yet, Paul makes it clear, the irony is a Pharisee is chosen by God to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And Paul's heart has never stopped breaking, yearning for his people. And he, he speaks of his anguish. He could almost wish himself cursed to hell for their salvation. And here's the problem. He lays out the problem in verse 4. Notice this. With the church existing, 
with the people of God existing as the church, Paul says in verse 4, they are Israelites, and there's no question, no one argues here whether we're talking about physical Israel at this point. They are Israelites, to them belong. Notice it doesn't say belonged. Paul, with the existence of the church, is still speaking of Israel in present possession of these things. What, are the, what belongs to them? The promises. The adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the patriarchs, and from their race, the Christ. There's, there's a difficult dilemma that Paul's got to deal with here, and the, the solution is not, well, they had those things, and now the church has those things. That's one way you can resolve. Well, what happened to Israel? Well, God was working with Israel, and Israel's rejection of their Messiah was so stark, so grave, so final, that God set them aside, he's done with them, and now he's working with the church. That, that's partly true, but that... That can't be the answer. Paul insists up front, Israel possesses these things. That's precisely why there is a problem. How can a people who possesses the promises, the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the worship, be enemies of God and the gospel? How how can that be? That is precisely the dilemma that Paul is trying to deal with. So, he gives this bold answer then in verse 6. Whatever the solution is, he says, it is not as though the word of God has failed. And really, in in many respects, that statement is what Paul defends for the next three chapters. It is not as though the word of God has failed. So, So the first wrong way to resolve this tension is we don't say, as some do, well, Israel has no more promises. Israel has no more covenants. The church has received them. That's not the answer. The other answer we don't come to is this. We don't say, well, I guess God promised more than he could deliver. He he meant to do all these things for Israel, but God's word failed. He broke his promise. That's not the right answer. So what is the answer? The answer then, point B, is God sovereignly chooses some. This is where Paul brings out election and predestination to deal with this tension. We read, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, the end of verse 6. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise says, about this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also Rebekah, when conceived, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though... They were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. God sovereignly chooses some. Paul's answer is this. Yes, God made promises to Israel, but he never intended that to mean every single last Israelite. Not all Israel is Israel. And then Paul illustrates that point by going to the patriarch who received the promises to begin with, Abraham, and he said, basically, how many sons did Abraham have and how many received the promise? To Isaac, not Ishmael, to Isaac. So right off the bat, the promises are given to your descendants. I'm going to bless, but not this descendant, this descendant. God chooses. God chooses. And the point's made even more explicitly And that it's choice of Jacob over Esau because Paul here says it wasn't based upon what he saw them doing. It wasn't based upon Jacob's going to be a really good guy. For those of you who are going through the Genesis study, you know better than that. 
Genesis is not, Jacob is not a really, really good guy. It's the really, really good and gracious God. So that's, that's where Paul brings in this notion of God choosing, God electing. And what he's pointing out is this is the way it's been from the start. The solution to this tension is, yes, God has promises for Israel. He never intended to give them all to every single last Israelite who ever lived. Let's move on. He's going to deal with some objections now, starting in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. And of course, Paul here anticipates the standard objections to the doctrine of election and predestination, which is, that's unjust. That's not right. I don't like that. And he points to Moses and Pharaoh. For he says to Moses, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. He's going back to Exodus 34, where Moses in the cleft of the rock says to God, show me your glory. God says, I'll show you my glory, that which you can see and not die. This is my glory. I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I have compassion on whom I have compassion. What Paul's saying is from the very first disclosure of who God is to Moses in the rock. God has said, hi, I'm God, and I do what I want. Hi, I'm God, and I mercy whom I mercy. This is no new teaching. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's challenging. It is not new. Paul's conclusion, verse 16, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Example number two, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wills, and he hardens whom he wills. He told Moses, clearly, I'm going to harden Pharaoh for my purposes. The God who, who t- tells Moses, I mercy my mercy, does exactly that. And again, I'm not going to defend Paul's reasoning. I'm just trying to show you that's, that's how he's reasoning. He's defending this statement. God's word didn't fail. Israel still possesses the promises. Here's the answer. Not all Israel is Israel. God never intended nor promised to save every last Israelite. Okay, moving forward to the next objection, which we will breeze through as quickly as we can. Why does he still find fault? And he moves to the issue of the potter and the clay, which is, again, back to the question of who really is God. Are we God or is God God? Because if God's God, he's not accountable to us. The clay doesn't get to say to the potter, why'd you make me like this? Then he goes on and cites a number of Old Testament texts to back up that point. So he looks at Israel's past election, He points out the pattern of God sovereignly choosing. That this is the way it's always been from God's first meet and greet. This is my glory, Moses. I mercy my mercy. From the first patriarch who only one child was selected. And his children, only one child was selected. Again, this pattern that God chooses sovereignly. But then we're going to look at Israel's present Willful rejection. And so in chapter 9, Paul establishes the sovereignty of God over all salvation, God's choice over such things. He is now going to firmly establish Israel's fault and culpability. Because we fully believe the Bible teaches both that man is responsible and God is sovereign, that God chooses whom he wills, he mercies whom he wills. And yet we make real decisions and and we really are guilty of our sin. And, And so now he's going to look at the present condition, Israel's willful rejection. First, he gives us the reason. Why why has this happened? How did they fail so terribly? Chapter 9, verse 30. What shall we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it 
by faith, but as if it were based on works. And there's, there's the answer. Why? Why did Israel fail? They relied on works righteousness. They did not pursue it as if based on faith. And then he goes on to explain this some more. Pick it up in chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved, for I bear them witness. They have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Doesn't matter how well intentioned you are, doesn't matter how passionate you are, doesn't matter how committed you are, doesn't matter how true of a believer you are, if you're not believing what is true, you perish. You perish. Very sincere. Very faithful, very ardent men flew planes into buildings a decade or so ago, right? No one doubts their faith. We challenge the object of their faith. We deny the truth of the foundation of their faith. In Paul's day, the Jews had a zeal for God, not in accordance with knowledge. Good intentions are not enough. Sincerity is not enough. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God... And seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. How did Israel end up where they ended up? They didn't submit to God's righteousness. They didn't pursue it by faith. They pursued it by works. They wanted to earn their salvation. That's how they got where they got to. And then Paul moves into the remedy present remedy. Verse, just skip to verse 8 of chapter 10. What does it say? What does God's word say? The, the word is near you and in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And what Paul's doing here is he's re-expounding what he's already said in the book because he's doing a lot of things at once in Romans 9 through 11. And he's not going to miss an opportunity to restate his thesis of justification by faith. That we are saved, that our sins are forgiven when we not do things, but we come and turn from our sin to the Lord in faith. When we trust him, when we receive him, when we commit ourselves to him. And so Paul unpacks that again. And the need for, for evangelism, the need for the gospel to go to the nations. The scripture says, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches upon all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him on whom they've not heard? They've not believed. And how will they believe on him whom they've not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. That's, that's, their, that's what they needed to do. That's why Paul's passionate about the gospel. But then, in case someone thinks, well, maybe the Jews didn't hear. Maybe they, maybe they didn't clearly hear and understand. Verse 18, we get to the result. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. Indeed they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I asked, did Israel not understand? Okay, Paul says, maybe the problem isn't that, what I've just said it was, maybe the problem is first, they never heard the gospel. No, Israel heard the gospel. Jesus traveled, his disciples traveled and went out. Well, maybe, maybe they didn't understand. Maybe that was the problem. First, Moses says, 
I'll make you jealous by those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I'll make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me, and I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, here's a sort of summary of Israel's guilt and culpability. All day long, I've held out my hand to a disobedient and contrary people. So we've seen Israel's present condition. What went wrong? They pursued salvation by works. When the real salvation, the remedy, is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ with the result that they heard, they understood, and they rejected it. They hated it, and they nailed their Messiah to a tree. Well then, in light of that, chapter 11's opening question might make a bit more sense. If that's true, they were that hard-hearted, if their unbelief was that firm, if they would eyes wide open, having heard, having understood, rejected, then maybe the other position, the covenant view is right. God has finally rejected Israel. Now we're going to look at Israel's future and ultimate salvation. We're going to spend the rest of our time here having sprinted thus far. He asked the question, which I hope at this point you understand why he's asking it. I ask then, has God rejected his people? We've just seen in chapter 10 and the end of chapter 9 all the reason why God might in fact do that. They heard, they understood, they said, no, we can earn it. We're good enough. We're born into the right family. We're sons of Abraham. And they killed God on a tree. Has God rejected his people? And get Paul's firm answer, okay? This is why I love this passage. It's so clear. By no means. Now, maybe at this point, someone could jump in and say, well, this is a statement about the church. He loves the church. Keep reading. For I myself am an Israelite. Spiritual or physical, Paul? A descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. No, Paul is clearly saying, we know God hasn't ultimately rejected Israel. I'm proof positive because I'm a Benjamite. I was a Pharisee, Paul's saying. So it can't be a full rejection because there's at least one believing Israelite, Paul says. No, God has not, by no means, God has not rejected Israel. We've got to get that clear. A chosen remnant is being saved by grace. Look at verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. I don't know how it gets any clearer than that. That's why I thought this passage would be helpful. Has God rejected Israel? God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Oh, okay then. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? And now he's going to the situation of Elijah after the showdown with the prophets of Baal. Lord, they've killed your prophets, they've demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. What does the Lord say? What's God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect attained it. What Paul's answer is this. For this time, for this epoch, there will constantly be a chosen divine remnant of ethnic Israel who are believers. Paul is proof positive of that, Paul himself being an Israelite. And through history, there has always been this little stream, this little stream of believing Israelites. 
That's, that's for now. The remnant saved by grace, the rest hardened by unbelief. End of verse 7, the rest were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David said, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So first he asks the question, has God rejected Israel? By no means. By no means. First off, he's saving some right now. There's a remnant. There has been a remnant, but that's not the final answer. It gets way better than that. God has not rejected his people. Amazingly, point B here, 3B, God has a purpose in Israel's current unbelief. This is profound. This is part of God's plan. God purposed. God purposed this. Look at verse 11, the next question. And these rhetorical questions Paul asks kind of direct the flow of the argument. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? Which is to say, did God purpose, was the purpose, was the plan for their failure, their death and destruction ultimately, that they would fall? You stumble, and either after you stumble, you regain yourself, or you fall flat on your face. Israel has stumbled. Was the purpose of that stumbling their utter destruction? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. You understand that? If Israel had not stumbled, Paul is saying, we would have never received the gospel. That's what he says. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. The gospel has gone out to the Gentiles. That's part of God's purpose. God's purpose in this stumbling. The sovereign God has a purpose in Israel's unbelief. Second part of that purpose, we'll see in verse 12 and following, Israel's future restoration will bring far greater blessings. Look at verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, what he's saying is, okay, so Israel stumbled, the gospel's gone to the world. That is riches, right? We sang about the gospel. This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. So if the result of Israel stumbling was this really good thing, the gospel going to the nations, their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more would their full inclusion mean? And here's what Paul's saying. If we get blessed so greatly that we can sing Sunday after Sunday about this gospel love because Israel stumbled, can you imagine how good it's going to be when Israel gets it right? When Israel is restored and included? We're going to see that in Zechariah. Next week, Pastor Daniel's going to talk about the kingdom. We're going to participate in the kingdom. We're going to rule with Christ in the kingdom. You think this is good. Wait till you see what happens, Paul is saying, when Israel is, is restored. And thirdly, a third plan or purpose in this. First, that, that the gospel would go to the Gentiles. Second, that by stumbling and then recovering, greater riches occur than what would have first happened. Third, that even at this time, Gentile faith is provoking Israel to jealousy. You see that at the end of verse 11. He did this to make them jealous. Verse 13, now I am speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order that somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous. And thus to save them. You read through the book of Acts, that is precisely why the Jews were attacking Paul. 
Some are getting converted and some are just getting angry. Because when he saw the riches of God's love lavished out on these dirty Gentiles like you and me, they became jealous. Some of them became converted. Many tracked Paul from city to city attacking him. That is what God is doing. There's a purpose. It wasn't a mistake. It didn't catch God by surprise. There is a purpose in Israel's unbelief, which leads then to a warning for us. God warns us about becoming arrogant. He warns us about becoming arrogant. Look at verse 17. But if some of the branches were cut off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Paul shifts to a, to a botanical illustration. And grafting in of branches into olive trees is something known in, in Paul's day. And he uses this illustration. He's piggybacking off the end of verse 15. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And he uses this extended metaphor to warn us against arrogance. Because I do submit to you that if, if you conclude that God is done with Israel, that we've inherited everything they have, that there is no further story for Israel, church history demonstrates. I got a book where Honer goes through very, very meticulously demonstrating that arrogance towards Israel, a haughtiness that we're warned specifically about. God gives us three reasons not to be arrogant. The first, because we are saved by Jewish promises and a Jewish Messiah. First reason, why shouldn't you and I be arrogant? I mean, Israel messed up and now he's chosen us. Yeah? Nope. We're saved by Jewish promises and a Jewish Messiah. Remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. It's a Jewish Old Testament that we read. It's a Jewish Messiah who has saved us. His promises to, to, to Abraham, promises to, to, to those people are the promises that save us. We're grafted in. The root supports us, not the other way around. Don't be arrogant. Marvel at his grace, but do not be arrogant. We're saved by Jewish promises and a Jewish Messiah. Secondly, and here's a warning, we too will be rejected if we do not continue in faith. See, look at God rejecting Israel for a time and choosing us, and you can conclude one of two things. You can either conclude, wow, we must be something, or you can fear and tremble and say, wow, we better not make the same mistakes. We better be faithful. We've seen what God can do to people who persist in unbelief. That's what he goes on to next. We too will be rejected, starting in verse 19. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief but you stand through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. That's the conclusion to be drawn, not arrogance, fear. Reverent, serious, holy fear. God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note the kindness and the severity of God, severity towards those who have fallen. God's kindness to you, provided 
you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Don't be arrogant, fear. Don't become proud, fear. Pursue holiness, pursue faithfulness. Okay, that's the warning against that. I want to use an illustration at this point to help demonstrate this. I want you to picture, well, I'll take the, the botanical illustration of the, the, the vine and switch it to one of adoption, another gospel metaphor. I want you to imagine there's a wealthy ruler, city ruler, he he's owns businesses, and he has one natural-born son. The name of the son is Jacob, Israel. And his son proves to be a profligate. He's rebellious, he's a drunkard, he carouses, he will not listen to his father, he, he is in rebellion. And after much patient discipline, the father finally comes to the point, as, as some parents have to come to, where he tells his son to leave, to get out. And the son no longer enjoys the benefits and the privileges of living in his father's house. He's on the street, an urchin, he's a bum. He no longer gets to sit at his father's table. He no longer gets to talk to his father every day. He no longer gets to eat the rich and sumptuous food and dress in fine clothing. But he does not repent and learn from his ways. He's still carousing. He's still a drunkard. He's much like the prodigal son. That, that I would suggest to you, is kind of what's going on with Israel. Now imagine that same man then, having a plan to restore his son and a plan to pour out and show love, goes to an orphanage and finds the smallest, weakest, sickliest child he can and adopts them into his family. That, that's you and me. Not many mighty, not many strong, not many wise, but God shows the foolish things to shame the wise. And he brings us in and he puts fine clothing on us. And he, and he sits us at his table in Jacob's seat. And, and he gives us our own room, but the room he gives us is Jacob's old room. We were in there, and there's his bedclothes and all the stuff on the wall and his toys and, and, and all of his things. We're watching Jacob's TV. And Jacob is walking by in the street periodically, and he sees through the window, hey, who's that in my old room? And the father's hoping it might provoke him to jealousy, to repentance. And the father takes us to the work site, and he teaches us what he's doing and how he does what he's doing, and, and we're beginning to go about our new adopted father's business. Now, imagine our father sends us to do some business in town, and we get in, the, in our father's car, and we drive there, and when we get out, there on the sidewalk, sitting there, is Jacob, the kicked-out son. The danger is that we could become arrogant towards him, that we could look down our nose at him. <laughs> you didn't know what you had, buddy. But we know, because our father, our adopted father has told us, he, he plans to restore Jacob. He plans to bring him back in one day. He's letting him learn through this heavy and hard discipline. But he will bring him to repentance. So how do you treat Jacob? He's, he's still a carouser. He's still wicked. He's still unrepentant. So in one sense, you, you can't run up and just sort of you know, hang out with him. But on the other hand, you know he's beloved by his father. You know that his father's not done with him. And so you treat him gingerly and you pray for him and you, you invite him back into his father's house. That's the situation that we're in. God is, has grafted us into to Jewish promises, but he fully intends, as we'll see, to restore those promises to his people. We must not become arrogant. We too will be rejected if we continue in the faith. Which brings us then to C3. God plans to restore a believing Israel. And even if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. 
For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? That's pretty clear. God's able to bring them back. I don't know how people can confuse this passage. He can graft them back in. He's able to graft them back in. And now we get to the final point, point D. God promises the future salvation of all Israel. And this is really the culmination of this section. He ties together his points. He restates them. Let's just work through three points. The mystery, the summary, the doxology. God promises the future salvation of all Israel. Linking with the thought of warning against arrogance, he says, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. The Bible speaks of a mystery. It speaks of something formally withheld, something formally not told. It is now revealed. It's not a mystery in the sense of the clues were there and you're expected to figure it out. It's really an unveiling, a revelation of something. I want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. I get that. How much of Israel will be saved? All. Now maybe he's talking about the church here. Can't be, because in the previous verse, he's distinguishing between the Gentiles and Israel. Look at that. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. No question what Israel means there. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And this is where I, I, I can't comprehend people that argue all of a sudden Paul is, after three chapters, the reason we've walked through all this, three chapters of clearly dealing with ethnic Israel and the problem of Israel, to suddenly say, because I, I, verse 26 is a big problem for those who want to argue that God's done with Israel. They've got to say, out of nowhere, suddenly, after three chapters, he's talking about the church. It won't fly. Keep going. As it's written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All Israel will be saved. We will see this happen in the book of Zechariah in chapter 12. We've looked at it repeatedly, but it's the passage where God says, when the nations gather around Israel, at the last moment, when it looks like they're done for, then he will pour out a spirit of pleas for mercy and they will look upon him whom they've pierced and they will mourn for him. He will convert them. They will come to faith. And then he will come and fight for them. We'll get to that in Zechariah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. And now, in the summary, he's going to summarize everything he set up to this point. And I was talking about that tension that you might feel if you're, if you're showing up to town to do business. Back in my illustration of we're the adopted son. And we come across the homeborn son. There's this tension that Paul recognizes as well. Verse 28, as regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. So there's a very real sense in which these people might try to kill you. Paul had already had them repeatedly attempt to kill him. He had been stoned and left for dead. He's fleeing from them. There's a very real sense. They're not playing on our team. They're playing for the enemy. They're enemies. They're dangerous. They may do you harm. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. And then get verse 29. For the gifts and the calling of God are temporary. No, it's not what it says. Irrevocable. 
This is why Paul took this tangent. Your and my salvation is only secure as God's calling of Israel. Your and my calling and salvation is only as secure as as the promises God made to Israel are. Either God's election and call are irrevocable or they're not. If God can make those promises to Israel and revoke them, then he could do the same to us. But praise be to God, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so too they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may also now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Why has it worked out this way? Why, why was there this apparent misstep where Israel missed the ball? They reject their Messiah? Because God had bigger plans, bigger purposes. He didn't just want to save one people. He wanted to save a people for himself from all tribes, from all nations, of all tongues. And in this way, he may have mercy on all. And so what Paul has just done is he moves now into just praise and adoration. As he has shown, and, and he's brought a lot of theology to bear, that God's in control of this thing. It didn't catch him by surprise. And Israel really is at fault. They really are willfully, willfully unbelieving. They, they understood what they were rejecting. And yet, God's not done with them. God's not done with them. We're living in this current state where on the one hand, they're enemies. On the other hand, they're beloved. They're the, they're the kicked out son who we know the father is going to one day restore. Because God's calling and gifts are irrevocable, And then we learn that God is orchestrating all of this with the wondrous purpose that he might have mercy on all. And it's based on that that Paul bursts into doxology and praise. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Paul, as he looks at God's plans and purposes, which are so above ours, we we would not devise a salvation like this. We would not devise a plan like this. God did it that he might have mercy on all. The gospel might go to all. And Paul is simultaneously filled with, and this is the tension that we get when we, when we learn about the doctrines of God's sovereignty and election and predestination. There's a tension. On the one hand, Paul is aching inwardly for his brethren. And on the other hand, he is praising God for his wise plan. Notice that the, the passage started with, I could almost wish myself accursed, and it ends with, praise be to God, God from him and through him and to him are all things. That's a tension for the age we live in now, always rejoicing, inwardly suffering. God is not done with Israel. He has made promises to them and given gifts to them. They still possess the promises, the fathers. And, And the good news is what Paul said at the end of chapter eight is true, and you can count on it because what God said to Israel is true and they can count on it. And he will bring about their salvation. He will bring about their conversion. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. God has not rejected his people. And he, therefore, we can be confident, will never reject us. Is that not good news? Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you that you are faithful, that your promises are sure, that you keep your word, that you can be counted on. 
that you will hold us fast, that our anchor holds. And we thank you, Lord, that you have brought us in, not as natural branches, but as wild Gentile branches into these promises and salvation. And Lord, we do pray. We do look forward to the future salvation and restoration of Israel, to whom belong and from whom came our scriptures and our Messiah. In the meantime, Lord, we pray that you would guard us from arrogance, that, that we would help you accomplish your purposes in bringing the fullness of the Gentiles in. Lord, save for yourself a people for your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. <laughs>